Welcome to Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of support for individuals in recovery from substance misuse and mental health-related issues. There are numerous pathways to recovery, and each week we welcome powerful leaders and role models who have struggled in drug and or alcohol addiction, have found a pathway to recovery, and who thrive as positive community members with an ongoing vision of success. Join us as we share our experiences, strength, and hope. When the world says, give up, Hope Whispers. Try it one more time. What's up, Mount High, and welcome back to Sharing Our Stories. My name is Slim. To the left of me, Nani Al-Jaleel. How you doing? I'm doing good, Slim. Thank you. So good to see you. Uh, over there in the corner, Mount High, that is Tomas Hernandez from Tribe Recovery Homes, who does great work, even though we, we tend to pick on each other quite a bit. Uh, and our guest today thing. is Kelly Mahana, and this is Sharing Our Stories, and welcome to the program. And if this is your first time here, this program is all about addiction and recovery. We bring in people from around the mile high and, and even further to come on in and discuss their discuss their struggles with addiction and their pathway to recovery, because we do believe that uh, there are many pathways to recovery. There's not just one way to do it and, and find that, you know what, you can get sober. There are a lot of them, and we want to share those because I believe, and I think everybody else here does too, that uh, when we share these stories, we give other people some some strength and hope that they too uh, can get clean because that's what it's all about. We want to see some people um, make their lives better. We want we want lives to to last longer, um, and that's what this is all about. So Tomas from Tribe Recovery Homes. Tribe Recovery Homes is the sponsor of this program. You can find them at triberecoveryhomes.com. Uh, how's it going, man? Good, good, man. It's really good to be home. Really good to be home. Um, yeah, you travel bit. constantly. All you do now is like fly from place to place, saving lives, saving, doing good things, but yeah. you're never actually here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I got the opportunity. I have a, you know, I have different positions now. I have a great staff. So it's really, really fun to to really spread my wings. I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how to diversify and not just help tribe. Like the show here, like the great uh, story we're about to hear is to save lives on a mass scale, you have to lock arms with different organizations and figure out where all the funding's at so we can all have a piece. And that's really the mission where I'm at. And, you know, stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, everybody that's listening, that I just got started. I'm learning this new uh, phase of fundraising. Um, I have a few hot projects on, on, the, on the burner right now, but it's all about raising money for not only Tribe, but for many, many organizations in different cities. So it's, uh, I'm tired. You know what I mean? I got a very patient wife. I got a very, uh, very trustworthy and motivated staff. Um, but one thing I do know is traveling. Um, I figured out, I got to give a big, huge shout out to Colorado on the Metro Denver area recovery uh, movement and reentry movement. We are Rome. So know that when you are out there thinking what we don't have anything in Colorado, you really have to reach out and open up your eyes because I've traveled to a lot of places that don't have anything Mm -hmm. or they are saturated with the wrong things. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, You know, like Las Vegas becoming a second home. It's, you know, I got dual residency there now and I love the place and it just, it needs help. Yeah. It needs help. And they just have a different way of doing things and you got to learn their way. You can't come in with the Colorado way, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of different knowledge that I can instill. And the same thing is become a family in the great state of Nevada, just like the great state of Colorado. And then going to California, man. And California is just, that's like Rome 2023, four, five, six, seven. You know what I mean? Um, California is its own animal. It's uh, really, you look at a Metro Denver area, right? And then you look at an L.A. County area, which is 
five times as much people in that area. And it's, uh, it's really unfortunate that we don't have an exact scope on the people that are doing the great work out there and getting them the funding that they need, which is my new mission. But it's really fortunate that we do have them, if that makes sense. And I really want to go ahead and take media in this show and get out there with a microphone and a camera and really start showcasing these people and the great work that they're doing, just like we're going to do tonight. I mean, I'm really, really honored to have you on this show, man. I mean, just when you hear this story, it's great. It's a guy that just did a tremendous amount of time and took a small business and made it into a business that's profitable, that turned into helping people in the end. And that's really what that mission is and being on, on all these flights, really finding stories like this, because it's like, man, if you know Denver and you're from Denver, the story you're about to hear is a man, a guy, a kid that lost his way from North Denver. And if you know anything about North Denver, wasn't a lot of opportunity. Still is not a lot of opportunity besides gentrification. You know what I mean? <laughs> other, than that, you know, other than that, you know what I mean? You just kind of just stay in the mix and you got to figure out where you're at and you got to, you know, and you got to be and you're either going to sink or swim. So, you know, um, I just really, really loving being back home and being on this show. And it's really great to have you as a guest here. And uh, let's rock with it, man. I'm just I'm excited to hear this. So real quick, Kelly, before I turn it over to you, um, you run a recovery home now, a sober living. Yes. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that real fast. Yeah. So I opened up Authentic Recovery Homes. We have three level two car certified um, recovery homes. Two of them are in Capitol Hill in Denver, um, which is cool because it's right in the mix of everything. And then we have one just south of GW, which is still in Denver. It's like on the outskirts of Cherry Creek. And so we really work with individuals from all walks of life, all different struggles. Right. Some people struggle with alcohol. Some Mm -hmm. people struggle with fentanyl. Um, some people struggle with the criminal justice system mm-hmm. and addiction. And we also work with people who have co-occurring disorders, too. So they're dealing with substance use disorder and mental health stuff and any array of all of the above. I just read today that 63% of people incarcerated are dealing with some kind of substance abuse problem. I think that's a really n- low number. And I don't know who they, <laughs> yeah. pulled. I don't know who they pulled to get that number. Yeah. And so, you remember how much we used to lie on our paper? <laughs> yeah. So like, I remember the first time I went in, I said I did everything. And when I got out on parole, I had like 10,000, 20 classes, exactly. And 10, cl- and 10 UAs a week and everything like that. So when I came back in, man, I was lying. I don't do nothing. I don't do a thing. You know what I mean? And that's crazy how you get those numbers. But, I mean, yeah. it's in the ballpark, but I, I, I bet you. I say it's so much higher mm-hmm. just yeah. from being in there yeah. for so long. Well, everyone's getting high on something. I'm going to let you uh, take over here. This is your program from here on out um, and share and share your recovery and uh, your addiction and your recovery. Our guest today, Mahai, is Kelly Mahana from Denver. Um, I came here when I was young, so but I've been here pretty much my whole life. All right. This home. Yeah, this, this is, home. is home. Denver's home for sure. Malhai, welcome Kelly Mahana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tomas. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll just tell you guys a little bit about myself. My mom is Mexican. My dad is white. I grew up mostly with my mom's side of the family. And part of our culture was gangs. Like, that was the big thing. Like, my earliest memories are like one of my uncles going to prison. And that wasn't a bad thing. Everyone was like, oh, like, they were just so proud of him and like he got so much respect. So that was like, he was my idol. So I was like, oh, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be. 
And my mom had her own struggles, so I got bounced around from home to home with her family members, like my aunt, my grandma, my grandpa, or my grandparents. And then my dad ended up getting murdered um, one of the times he came to pick me up. And it happened right in front of me, like a couple months before I turned six years old. Um, and so that kind of really molded me and shaped me in a negative way because I, I knew like the boogeyman was real because I saw my dad get killed in front of me. And then just the instability, the only thing that was constant around me was, was the gang in my neighborhood. And everyone like respected those dudes. So that's just always what I wanted to be. I just always wanted to be a gangster, you know? And like my mom was like, you're a white boy, you ain't. I'm like, we gonna see, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was what it was. Um, when I was 10 years old, I caught my first felony. I got into a fight with this older, I was 10, he was 15, but he had just got out of youth corrections. He was a gang member already, and I was just repping the hood. And he's like, fool, you ain't official. And I was like, it is what it is. We started getting down, and he hit me. I fell down. There was a Snapple bottle right there. So I busted it off. The Well, I, I did this. I hit it on the ground, and it just it didn't break. <clears throat> hit it again, it broke, and I just started stabbing him. But he, I mean, he didn't tell on me because he mm. had his own stuff. Mm. But I still got charged for that. So I got, I've been in the system since I was 10 years old. I ended up getting sent to the Colorado Division of Youth Corrections. And yeah, so when I was in there, I was still wrapping my hood or whatever. I've, when I got out, I got put on when I was 12 years old. I got jumped on. I remember I had my, uh, back then there was like the tall tees. Do you remember that? <laughs> the white tall tees. So I had an all white tall tee on. And I was chilling at a house party with a bunch of homeboys and whatever. And they're like, hey, come outside real quick. And one of the homegirls was like, don't go, don't go outside, don't go. <laughs> and I went outside and they put me on. And then like we framed that shirt and they put, everyone signed it. My blood was all on it. It was, it was crazy. Um, well, yeah, at that same time when I was 12 years old, that's when I like learned how to start selling crack. And it happened because I was bouncing around from place to place between my homeboys and one of my older homies used to sling a lot of a lot of dope. And I remember one day he gave me a teener. He was like, here, bro, get you some money. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went to another homie and I was like, hey, bro, what can I sell this for? He's like, I'll give you 20 bucks. I was like, all right. So I gave him this teener. And I went back to my home. I was like, yo, bro, I made 20 bucks off that. He's like, are you stupid? He's like, bro, you could have got way more for that. And he's like, here, let me show you. So then he started breaking down, like, how, how to slang dope and all that. And so that's kind of, not kind of, that's what I started doing. I just started slanging crack. And uh, that's, that's how my addiction, like, really came full-fledged was there was a, another homie from my hood. He was my same age. And uh, he was like my best homie. And uh, I would sell, sell crack all day and I was sleeping on the couch in his aunt's house because he lived with his aunt. Yeah. And he, I'm, a, I'm a teenager, I'm young right now. And uh, he, he ended up becoming a smoker. So he got smoked out and him and some Eastside, <laughs> they yeah. jumped me. Him and some Eastsider yeah. jumped me and robbed me for all my dope. So yeah. I got stabbed in that incident. And uh, I went to my other homeboy's house and I was like, oh, bro. And he's like, here, hit this. And he put a pipe in front of my face. 
He's like, it'll make you feel better. And so next thing I knew, it was literally three days later. And I was like, I was just extremely high. Like I had smoked weed and drank and all that for years before then. But I never really thought of it as like, at that time, I kind of looked down on like the smokers, what we used to call them, the smokers. Like I would sell crap to people and I'd treat them like, like dirt. And then, uh, man, I got hooked. And I was like, what is that? And that's when I found out it was meth. Um, so I ended up going to youth corrections, got committed. I got out three months before I turned 18. And I didn't care about anything. I was just like, whatever, I'm out here. I didn't have nowhere to go. I didn't have nowhere to parole mm-hmm. to. I came up on my like my MRD for youth corrections, like my commitment was over because mm-hmm. that's what they call when you get adjudicated yeah. and committed. And so there's this woman who was like 35. Mind you, I'm a teenager. And she's like, well, you can stay here if you, you know, hook up or whatever. So I was like, yeah, I have to. I need a, a address to parole to. Um, but she didn't let me stay with her. So, but it got me out, which was cool. So I'm like, it's, I'm right out here. I'm like trying to find dope. I'm trying to do whatever. I'm kicking down doors. I'm I'm robbing stuff. I'm I'm just all over the place. And I'm getting high again because I'm I'm all the way strung out by now. I'm shooting up meth. And uh, yeah, I, I was gone. And then I started getting into some crazy stuff because I was on drugs and alcohol and colonopins and just everything, anything I could get my hands on, like I would take, but I never thought I was an addict because I was still selling dope. So I was like, well, I'm not you. Like I'm, I'm out here doing my thing. Like you're a drug addict. I'm not. And then I, me and my girl, my girlfriend at that time and one of my homeboys, he ended up passing away when he got out on um, rest in peace. He overdosed and died even though he did tell on me there's paperwork on it. <laughs> but anyways, that's a different story. That is a whole different story. But we, we went out, and I basically cuffed my girlfriend at the time some, some dope, some clear. She gave it to her friend. It turned into a whole big old deal. I ended up getting a 60-year sentence. I was a teenager, but I was on juvenile parole. And they're like, oh, whoa, boom, gone. So I went to prison when I was a teenager. I went to Lyman, which was which is a level four yard here in Colorado. And uh, it used to be notorious, I don't know, nowadays, but my first experience walking in to A, no, well, first I'll tell you, we go, the bus pulls up into reception and then like you you get your bag full of stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. The CO starts walking us to A, no. And mind you, I'm a teenager, I was scrawny and scared and whatever. Um, and anyone who says they're not scared when they first go to prison, they're full of it. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't believe him at all. Yeah. So the CO's like, if you have any issues, say something now because we won't save you. So now I'm really scared because I'm like, my my neighborhood is not popular in prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, dang, man, I'm like nervous. And I'm like, whatever, we'll, we'll see what happens. I could hide out because if you don't know me, you just think I'm a white boy. So I could hide out until t- I see some homies and then go from there. Um, as soon as we walked into A, no, it was 1B back then. It might still be. I don't know. But in Lyman, we walk in, someone from the third tier, third tier yells, hey, who came? And this dude just steps back and he goes, he's a Northsider. And they just pop a couple Sudanians, pop their doors, ran down and like jam me up. Boom, boom. I go to the hole. So now I'm in the hole. 
I get a kite. There's only four Northsiders on the whole yard. They're like, well, hey, are you coming back out? And I was like, yeah, I'm coming back out. They're like, all right, well, then we're going to get you over here. So I went there, but that was my first experience in mm. prison. I got jumped. You know, <laughs> right that? out the gate. Yeah, and I had, like, at that time, I thought I was going to die in prison. Yeah. Um, then once I hit the unit, it was 3C at that time. It was three other Northsiders and then me. I made four. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was just rough and rocky for a lot of years. And uh, I got sent to CSP on three different occasions for engaging in the ongoing gang rivalry. But the whole time I was there, it was actually one of those times when I was in CSP, I took this drug and alcohol class. This was before they opened it up and you could come out of your cells. Mm-hmm. And so the only way to get out of your cell was to go to like a, a drug and alcohol class. Now, I didn't go because I thought I had a problem or anything. <laughs> I just wanted out of my cell. And mind you, we weren't like free out of that cell. We were yeah. handcuffed, shackled, had a belly chain, yeah. chain up our butt, and we were padlocked. So to tell them what a social threat group means and, and explain Yeah, that. So that's basically what we're explaining. Yeah, so in prison, a STG group just means you're a validated gang member. And CSP is Colorado's maximum security prison. Mm-hmm. So that's the highest you could go. And they've, ch- they've changed a lot now mm-hmm. how they run. But the first two times I went there, it was, they said it was 23 and one, but it was 24 hours a day. Yeah. Your one hour out was another cell with the pull-up bar in it. Mm-hmm. Like you were there by yourself. Like mm-hmm. you didn't, like yeah. you think I'm pale now, you should have yeah. seen me after the first four years I did in there. Yeah. I was see-through. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> Man, it, it sucked. And, and what's even crazier is like, I only saw TSP do two things to people. It either made, like, after three years, I don't know why, but three years was, like, the magic number. So after three years straight in, in there, people would go crazy, like, loony, like, weird, like, rubbing poop on themselves and talking to stuff that's not there. Or that hate just builds, and it gets so much more intense, and you don't care about anything because now you know that there's nothing that can be done to you except death. Um, and that's the boat I fell into. Well, I'm glad you didn't rub poop on you. Yeah, man, me too. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> nah. So um, second time I go there, I'm like, you know, let me go to this drug and alcohol. And and let me say this, for those of you who aren't aware, that stuff is frowned upon, or it used to be. So like yeah. taking mental health meds, like if you're from a, a gang and yeah. you were politicking on those, at least on those level yards, if you were legit like bipolar or whatever, you could not take no mental health meds. Yeah. And the reason behind that was because you need to be ready at all times to go in case anything happens. And so I was like, man, I don't care. I've been in this cell for years. I, I want to go. I want to get out of this cell. Mm-hmm. So I went to this drug and alcohol class. Um, and then oh, I left this part out. They have like a hole in the desk. Mm-hmm. And so not only do you have all that stuff and padlock to the floor, but they run a chain through that hole. And then they handcuff you to that, too. Mm-hmm. So you're like... So you're handcuffed to the desk is what you're saying. You're handcuffed to the desk and padlocked to the floor. And you got a belly chain and another set of handcuffs. And you got the shank, the ones around your ankles. And then you got the lovely chain that goes up your butt. Um, yeah, even if you work in the kitchen, you get stripped out every time you come in and you come out. So and you can't, and they, come from a different, they come from a different prison and they have no contact with them. Right? Yeah. And you can't look the COs in the face. Like You have to turn around. So like if you're going to leave yourself even for your shower you have to turn around and face inside your cell they tell you to back out 
and they move with like three of them at a time. And like you, if you look at them, they'll, they'll get crazy. I don't know if it's still like that, but that was my experience when I was there. Um, but that's also happens to be where I overdosed. I overdosed in a non-contact facility. The administration was really mad about that because you don't have any contact with anyone except COs. So they were like, how did you get drugs in here? And I was like, Psh, I think you guys tried to kill me. That's what I told them. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like that was kind of one of my biggest eye openers was when I overdosed in prison. The guard who kind of like saved my life was, was a, a mark. Like nobody liked him. And he was like, are you okay? I was like, nah. He took me to medical. The nurse, he's, no, well, what he said was like, you know, it's $5 to go to medical. I was like, I don't want to go to medical. I didn't ask. Well, he took me anyways. I collapsed, took me to medical. The nurse was like, he's faking it. Take him back to a cell. This dude got on the phone and called shift commander and was like, hey, they're telling me to take him back, but he's not okay. And she was like, well, who is it? And he was like, Mahana. And she was like, nah, call the ambulance, get him out of here. Well, they called the helicopter, but the ambulance got there first. And then they took me to this hospital in Canyon City, Colorado. And it was horrible. Because this was before all the Narcan and all this stuff they have now to, like, prevent that stuff. Mind you, when I go to the hospital, man, I'm handcuffed yeah. and chained to the little hospital bed. The, the, and you're in territorial. No, I was in in St. Thomas More. Oh, you're in the the actual hospital. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so, but the the medical staff, they didn't care about me. Mm -hmm. They weren't like, oh, we we need to save him or help him. They did the bare minimum. They treated me like crap. And like, as soon as I was like, okay, in their minds or whatever, they're like, don't fall asleep. Get him out of here. They took me back to the facility. I still thought I was going to die. I was messed up. Um, And the guards on the way. They're doing that little thing where they press the gas and then slam on the brakes and I'm hitting everything and like they're yeah. laughing and I'm like Yeah, and you're in that little cell inside of the cell inside of the bus. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just like, man, that that was a one huge eye opener for me. Mm-hmm. And then it was also around that time that the lady who taught that drug and alcohol class was like, Why don't you think you're an addict, Mahana? And I was like, because well, I'm not. And she's like, Well, how much drugs do you do? Didn't you just overdose? Didn't you? And I was like, yeah, but not because I'm an addict. And she was like, well, you think because you used to sell drugs that you're not a drug addict, but you probably did more drugs than the people you sold to. And that like hit me. And that was like the first time I was like, oh, oh, man, I think I do have a problem. And then just all of that on top of having to be in a cell by myself and not having no contact, only two phone calls a month. If you on good standing with like the administration and you get your phone calls, my I just I remember looking in the mirror one day and just like hating myself. And it's not like a mirror. It's I don't know how to piece describe. of tin. Yeah, that you can't even really see or so you look like the beast, you know, from Beauty and the Beast. Like you're yeah. all deformed and stuff. But I just remember looking at whatever was reflecting and just hating myself and being so angry and upset and frustrated. And then I realized in that same moment, like, dang, bro, I got myself here. Like, I could have blamed it on everyone around me and my childhood and, like, all that. But I, I realized, like, I was in charge of my life, and I I got myself to where I was at. Um, 
And then from there, I just started moving differently. Like I would, when I finally went back to the yard, I would like, like, oh, it's mandatory yard. It's mandatory this. It's man. I'm like, man, I'm not doing nothing if I don't want to do it. I don't care who's it mandatory to. To you, who are you, bro? You're another dude next to me. And then uh, I was, I went back to Lyman. Mm-hmm. So in 2015, 14, sometime in, in those years, I went back to Lyman. And then in 2017, we were supposed to be like on a treaty or whatever. Didn't work out that way. Got into another incident. Went back to CSP for engaging in an ongoing gang rivalry, but I didn't have a write-up. So I'm in CSP, but I don't have no write-up. Wow. So I'm appealing it. I'm appealing it. I finally won my appeals. So now I'm getting transferred to DRDC to wait to see what level four yard I'm going to go to now or back to. That's worse than probably where you're at. The place is boring as hell. Yeah. So I go and I was in unit five upstairs. I'm in my little jumpsuit sitting in my cell. I see my homeboy Stacks, um, rest in peace, Gage Rivera. He died of an overdose when he got out. But he was shook. And this is a childhood friend, not just a gang member friend, but like we mm-hmm. went to school together and all mm-hmm. that. And uh, I seen him and he's, he was shook. He was scared. He's like, bro. He opened up his jumpsuit and he had holes all in his body. He's like, bro, they just tried to kill me. Oh, talking about our gang rivalry. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you be ready when the doors open. And I was like, Ooh, all right, whatever. Um, and so I'm sitting there laying on my bunk. They come over the thing. They're like, Mahana, go to the office. I go to the office and it's this lady. She's a psychiatrist for the Department of Corrections. But she had been working there since I started my sentence. And so now she was like up here and I'm still in the same place I've been. But now I'm in my late 20s. And she's like, how are you doing? And I just started crying. It wasn't expect. I didn't even know she worked there or nothing. Man, I just started pouring out tears. I was like, dude, I'm sick of it. Like, I'm in the same place I've always been. I was like, I just don't want to be here no more. I, was, I hadn't even been to a medium security prison yet. Like, most people are scared to go to medium custody prisons. I'd only been in level four at max. I was like, man, I just... I want to go to a medium security prison. I don't, I just, I'm sick of it. And I was like ugly crying. And she's like, oh, Mahana, you know? And she's like, would you go to TC? And I was like, yeah, but they won't let me because of my points and everything else. What's TC? TC is Therapeutic Communities. And that's the Colorado Department of Corrections version of like inpatient treatment. Okay. And everybody understand when he's talking about points, you get points for whatever crime level, gang level, um, write-ups that you have so there's certain levels of minimum security to um, medium uh, medium to high to to csp to max to where you're you you point out and you end up in those those situations it's very 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 hard to lose to get down on points it's easy to get up but it's hard to get down i started up there so i I never went down (laughs) i'm like it you know so i'm like I want to go to a medium security prison. That was like my dream and my goal. Mm. Like in my head, I was like, oh, one day I'll go to a medium level yard. Uh-huh. Um, and so I skipped over the part. This is actually a huge part. During that time, one of my homeboys who had a life without and had exhausted all his appeals, you know, we go to yard, we do pull-ups, um, go to chow, whatever, you know, the routine. And uh, he hit me up like, yo, bro, you should let me see your, you should let me work on your legal work for you. You should let me see your stuff. 
see if I can help you. I was like, yeah, like you did for yourself. You know, like I would, I would clown him. I would yeah. clown him. I'm like, yeah, okay. You're going home, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah I'll be there with you, bro. Yeah. Um, but he would break me down for like three months straight every day. He would just, yo, let me see that. So finally, just to get him to shut up, I threw him my legal box. So he filed a motion for me and I can't remember exactly what it's called, but the gist of it is, and I had three other co-defendants. So like there's four of us here. There was four of us on my case. One was already a habitual offender in the state of Colorado, got probation. The other was on bond for a separate felony, got, I think, like maybe 10 or 15, or maybe 18 years in prison, something like that. And the other one got five years in prison. So what he filed was this thing. It was a motion. And the gist of it was like, we commit the same crime. We're on the same case. There has to be like... Like, if you get probation, I can't have 60 years. Like, they have to be similar sentencing. And I cannot remember what it's called. But so the court sent Arapahoe County, <laughs> sent me a, <laughs> they sent me a letter saying, like, hey, like, yeah, you have legal standing based on this motion. We're going to bring you back to court. So the day came and the day went. They never took me back to court. So now I'm in my cell pouting. All, I was like, that's why I didn't want you to do this anyways. Why would you do that? Um, sorry, my bad. But two weeks later, I get a mail from Arapahoe County Courts. They're like, yeah, you know, you did have standing or whatever. They reduced my sentence by 30 years. So now I'm like, whoa. I was in for eight and a half years at that time. Got 30 years knocked off. I'm like, dude, I could walk this down. But I'm still stuck in my same spot. You know, like my mindset didn't change. Nothing about mm -hmm. me changed except they reduced my sentence. Now, fast forward back to where I was in there crying with that psychiatrist who asked me if I would go to TC. I was like, yes. She called this lady. Her name was Michelle Smith. I know her. Yeah, she passed away. But she used to, when I was a scrawny little kid in CSP, she would like escort me places. And so she remembered me. She got on the phone with her in front of me on speaker. She's like, hey, do you re remember Mahana? She's like, yeah, yeah. And she's like, you're on speaker. You're on speaker. She's like, oh. She's like, hey, how are you, Mr. Mahana? I'm like, good. She's like, uh, Michelle was the head of TC for the entire state of Colorado at this point. Mm -hmm. That's how long I had been in yeah. the system. Like People who started were yeah. now advancing really high in their careers. And so she's like, Mahana wants to go to TC. And Michelle Smith was like, I do not think you'll be successful. She was like, but if you sign the paperwork, I will get you to TC. And the next morning I jumped on the bus. I'm like, yeah. They're like, you're going to Sterling. I was like, what? <laughs> so I go to Sterling to the high side. As soon as I walk in, riot. Boom. I go to the hole. I'm in the hole. That psychiatrist who was working at DRDC came up. She's like, I don't care what's going on. You are going to TC. I swear, like five days later, I was at Fremont in A&O. And uh, she got me into TC. So when I got on the yard, Michelle Smith actually came to Fremont Correctional Facility. She looked me in my eyes. She said, Mahana, I've known you since you were a young man. I do not think you deserve this opportunity. I don't think you're going to be successful. I had to go through it with so many people just to get you here. She's like, but I want to be the one person who said I gave you a chance. And she gave me a chance, man. And uh, yeah, when I graduated TC, she came to my graduation. 
she gave me a hug. She was like, bro, I'm so proud of you. She was like, I really didn't believe you were going to be able to do it. And uh, also while I was in TC, that's when one of my co-defendants did some other legal work. I got. We're good in there, huh? Huh, bro. Well, no, their family paid for them. Yeah, okay. Like, but I got 10 more years off, and so now I was already eligible for everything. Man. Got denied, got denied, got denied. And it was one of the therapists in TC called the halfway house I eventually ended up going to that had already denied me three times, and they're no longer open. It was Independence House Fillmore. She called the director. I, I wish that place was still So do I. That place changed my life. Um Sound like a few people changed your life. Yeah, a few people did for no reason. Like they didn't have any good reason. Like a lot of those people gave me a reason to believe in people. And she called the director. She's like, how many people do you accept every day who don't make it? She's like, I'm telling you, I'm around this guy every day. Like give him a chance. And if he doesn't make it, you were right. Who cares? And it worked. They accepted me. And I went to Independence House Fillmore. When I got there, no, mind you guys, I didn't find the Lord in prison. I didn't change. I wasn't like, oh, I'm, I'm or, or any religion. I didn't find no religion, whatever mm-hmm. religion. I was still me. I got there. This was a couple months before I turned 32. I had to get clothes from the donation closet. The shoes I got from out of there, the only ones they had that would fit me were two sizes too big. I didn't know how to turn on a smartphone. I didn't know what size clothes I wore because they only had large, small, medium. I didn't have no work skills, no education, nothing. Um, There was a dude from my neighborhood in there. He ended up giving me two pairs of clothes and a pair of shoes that were like half a size too small. And uh, that, that, that was how I got out of prison. I got my first job at a restaurant right up the street. I was washing dishes, making $11 an hour. I was supposed to bus. So half of my job wasn't just washing dishes. It was busing the dishes. And uh, the Best owner, job you ever had, wasn't it? No, man, kind of. Yeah, I mean, you get that chance, you know. Oh, free. yeah, I'm so thankful. Like, that's why this next part, when the owner came to me and was like, hey, bro, we kind of don't want you busing because you don't reflect good on our customer base. It, like, hurt my feelings. Was that because of the tattoos, basically? Yeah, because of the tattoos and stuff. Okay. It, like, hurt my feelings because I was, but now I was 32. I was washing dishes, making $11 an hour, and that, I wasn't even good enough to do that correctly. Um, but I love that place. That place gave me an opportunity, and they didn't have to, you know? So shout out to them. So, But I remember thinking in my mind, like, dang, man, like I'm not going to be successful out here. When I get out of the halfway house, I'm not going to be able to afford to live nowhere. Yeah, I remember at Jiffy Loop, they made me work under the cars. I couldn't be up, upstairs. Yeah. They didn't even let me they didn't yeah. let me come upstairs when customers were there. I had to work under the yeah. car. Like I, I couldn't even leave the dish pit, even interact <laughs> with the other employees. <laughs> They're like, stay in the dish pit. Unless you're clocking in yeah. or clocking out, yeah. just stay there. Yeah. Oh, man. You know? Um, that's when YouTube happened, bro. Like someone's like, Yo, listen to music. I was like, How? They're like, YouTube. <laughs> and I was like, What's that? And so an ad came up on YouTube for this like real estate investing company who does podcasts and I started watching it and I was like the therapy in Independence House Fillmore it really helped me because I'd be in the group sessions and I'm like dude I'm scared I'm scared when I get out that I'm gonna I'm gonna die or go right back to it because I don't know anything else and I'm, I'm not gonna be washing dishes when I get out of here 
And so that being able to, that was probably the first time I was so honest, not just with myself, but in front of other people, you know, because as a man, one, or as the type of man I am, I'm a prideful individual. That's first. The second part, being a gang member, you're not supposed to show no weakness. So like admitting you're scared in front of other dudes, that's like, oh, you're a chump, you're a broad. But I didn't care at this point. I was in my 30s and I was just scared. I was so scared. So I, I found YouTube. I seen like these people. I was like, oh, I can open a halfway house. I want to open a halfway house. But I looked, I'm like, oh, I'm a felon. I cannot open a halfway house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's when I learned about sober living homes at that same time because some of the guys who were in the halfway house had been in sober living homes. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, I'm going to open a sober living home. So I went in the all-purpose room, jumped on the computer, created an LLC, and I was like, boom, I'm going to open a sober living home. Mind you, I was making $11 an hour. Yeah. Didn't have nothing yeah. to my name. Talked like a 14-year-old and uh, realized I, I don't have the means or the ability to open a sober That's living home start. either. Yeah. But I just kept that kept that in my head every day. I finally was able to get a job at the rescue mission. And uh, I was working there like 12, 14 hours every day. I would eat there because they have a cafeteria yeah, kitchen there. Yeah. I I was did, for the feds, I did like two hundred seven, like two hundred seventy five hours of community service, and I waited till the last minute, so it became my job for free. Yeah, and I had to work there the and mission. work in the kitchen. Yep. Yeah, and you know, I'm not really a traditional Christian, so I had to act like I was all Christian for that chaplain yeah. and answer his questions just yep. to get that job. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, I we do. Got a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, we got I a do. lot in common on that. <laughs> I remember this guy used to have football cleats on, and he was like, man, these are the best things to wear. And he was just trying to make his football cleats so so cool because he was, these are better than the regular shoes, man. They keep my posture right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the mission is a trip, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but I would work there for like 14, 16 hours every single day, not even just the days I was supposed to work. I would work until they'd be like, yo, you got to leave. I would eat there because the food was free, and that's where I really started learning some professional development because they have their trainings and stuff that you have to do and it was cool because i got that professional development but at the same time everyone we worked with the only people who i knew in there were clients and they were messed up so i was able to see what my reality could be easily and it also hurt my heart because everyone i knew was either dead in prison not coming home or living in the shelter strung out like living horrible lives and so I just did that. I was like, I'm going to open a sober living home. I'm going to open a sober living home. And then my case manager from GRID, which used to be GRID, OCVS now, which Gang Reduction Initiative of Denver, he became the COO of a nonprofit here in Denver. And I used to, he used to walk through City Park with me when I was in the halfway house. And he was like, what do you want to do? Joe's amazing, man. Yeah, Pastor, Pastor Joe Aragon. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, I would tell him, like, man, I want to work with juvenile gang members so they don't end up like me. And so he called me up one day. He said, you still at the mission? I was like, yeah. He's like, I thought you wanted to work with juvenile gang members. <laughs> I was like, I do. <laughs> He's like, how's that going? I was like, yeah, I'm still at the mission. Probably be here till I die. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, well, hey, check this out. You know, I'm over here now. I'm their number two. And we do that. Will you come work for me? I was like, yes, sir. Yes, I will. So I started doing that and working overnight at the shelter. So I started working two full-time jobs. Were both jobs? 
one, I was a case manager doing youth violence prevention and secondary prevention with juvenile gang members. And my areas were East Denver and Aurora. Okay. And then my overnight was I was working was at the shelter. The mission. Yeah. So I was, I was working two full-time jobs. Still didn't even make no money, but it was cool. Like, so I was doing that. And then I was telling my wife, because my wife comes from like nothing too. And I was like, bro, we need to find a way to, you know, figure this out so I can. But I talked about the sober living home so much. She was like to the point where she's like, bro, you're crazy. You need meds. <laughs> like you need medication. Like you're living in a delusional world. Like it's not happening. And then I met a guy who's like, yo, you should open a hot dog cart. I used to make a $1,000 a day. I was like, bet. I came home Love from one of my jobs. I was like, yo, Bree, let's open a hot dog stand. She's like, no. I was like, Bree, let's open it. She's like, no. I was like, babe. She's like, no. I was like, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, why do you want to do a hot dog stand? I was like, because this guy said he'll, we'll make $1,000 a day. And she's like, all right, fine. So we put our little change together. We bought a brand new hot dog cart. We built our menu. And we just, we got, we did all the, the legal stuff. We got the commissary, got all that stuff, our food and sales tax license, all that. And we started going like downtown by Coors Field, right across the street on like 20, 20th and Blake on Friday and Saturday nights. And we wouldn't make $1,000 a day, but we do between $500 and $1,000 in sales per day um, in like four hours. And then we started doing like breweries, distillery, which goes against what we're talking about here. But we take our carts there and we we just sell hot dogs and bratwurst and like this bottle of water, we were selling water for $3. It costs us 10 cents per bottle. Um, but we, even then when COVID hit, there was not a whole lot we could do. And the supply chain issues came, so we couldn't even get our supplies. And then everyone was inside anyways. Uh, and the only contractor who was who could give us our food supply wanted us to sign a minimum order for six months for $10,000 each month, which was way more than we could do. Um, so, man, I just went back to work now again overnight at the Salvation Army shelter and full day, full time day job. And then Bree started working two full time jobs and we just started saving money, saving money, saving money. And I was like, I remember I was like, we're going to get a sober living home. We're going to get a sober living home. And she was so like, there was even times in my head where I was like, dang, am I that person who like is full of it? And I just live in like la la land. Cause you know how you see movies all the time where the person's like, we're going to be here one day. And, we're, and then they're like a hundred years old and they're never there. And he's like a whole disappointment to his wife and all that. I just remember feeling like, man, I don't want to disappoint my wife. She's like the only person who's ever rode with me. She's the only one. And so I'm like, no, no, no. Well, we finally found a house. We put put all of our money that we had into that house. And boom, the day we were supposed to close, the loan, the lender pulled the underwriting from us. So we lost that house. And we lost half of our money too, which was everything to us. I remember I was at my day job and Bree called me. Well, she was texting me, texting me, and then calling me. So I called her and she's crying. She's like, we lost it. We're not going to get the house. And it's my fault because she didn't work for three months during the pandemic when the whole world was out of work for the most part. And they knew about it the whole time. So she felt like we got played and she felt like we weren't going to get my dream because of her. And I just remember telling her, I was like, don't even trip. Like, we're going to get it. Don't matter if it's today, tomorrow, or next year. It's happening. 
And so I remember telling this business development officer at the place I was working at, I was like, hey, I got to go. I told my boss, I was like, I'm going to leave. Like, I just had some bad news. This guy walked up to me and he's like, what happened? And I told him that night, this dude called me up and he's like, hey, uh, don't sweat it, bro. He's like, I'll buy you that house. And I just started crying. Man, I never met a mother who would give me a suit, bro. Let alone a house, a half a million dollar house. Bro, two days later, we lost our money. But two days later, I bet you not, man. I'm up in this dude's house. We shook hands. And that's how Authentic started. Like, we didn't even sign a lease or nothing. He's like, hey, man, I heard your story. I'm in recovery. I heard you want to do sober living. And I was like, I do. And he, he's like, here. He's like, what do you think of this place? He's like, it's really nice. He's like, it's yours. Do it. And we shook hands. And I called Bree, and she's like, no, like that, that's not even real. And I was like, dang, man. Well, yeah, whatever. So I, as Bree's telling me, like, don't get your hopes up, this homeboy texts me, and he's like, oh, hey, I forgot to give you the codes and stuff for the house. And uh, he sent me over the codes and stuff, and I was like, you should send me the codes. He's like, do you want to come look at it? This dude had a, a Porsche sports car parked in the garage. When I met him, he pulled up in a Rolls Royce. I never seen stuff like that in real life, like mm -hmm. on TV and all that. But And then that's how it started. Like, it actually started. But I had been working for years. I had already had my application, my all this stuff, like the paperwork stuff. Mm -hmm. I had already had that. The website. I was paying for a website for years, and I didn't even have that. <laughs> I had stock images of other people's houses. <laughs> I still have mine. So, you know, like, like you know, it's, it's crazy about the stories. I found recovery inside of Dumb Luck inside of TC. You know, I made my first card, I remember, at Christopher, Con Christopher Conway's desk. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um didn't even have a chance to do anything. I just made this card, just a recovery coaching card, just to do transports. You know, nobody believed in me in sober living. Yeah, I started with four hundred dollars or six hundred dollars, yeah. and like four guys, and I just everybody was crazy. I got blessed by a, a lady named Nikki. Man, helped out her son, and uh, she got the first house for me. Yeah, you know, what I mean, she called me at two in the morning, and I and I made a joke, and she was like, "No, you just got to do everything that you did for Nikki boy." And you got to do the same thing, judicial and stuff like that. And I say, yes, man. Yeah. You know, and, and I didn't even have furniture. I put it out on Facebook. Yeah. And I had everything from judges to police to bloods and crips, GDs, everything, just dropping everything off. We probably in six hours, we had more furniture for three houses than we even needed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just, you showed up. And that's what I love about your story. I'm going to let you continue going. But I just really, really, really happy that you came on this show. Because, I mean, from what you've done to get where you're at, Everybody that's listening, that's the true article of what this this business is about. People think that sober living is about making money. No, it's just about getting a shot. For people that open up these these businesses to help people and to prove to themselves their worth. Because yeah. there's at times that we didn't have any worth. And nobody's going to give us a shot. And the people that gave us the shots would be the last people we could probably imagine in our whole life. And then all of a sudden we're here. Yeah. And that's it. And you and I were talking before we came on, came on, mm -hmm. and you were saying like, share share a lot of this stuff because the unorthodox ways that you and I both got here, it's the only way some people will ever have a dream, bro. Like I don't yeah. remember when I was in prison, I didn't have no dreams, man. I didn't think I was gonna be anything. When I got out, I was convinced I was nothing, man. I couldn't even get a job at McDonald's, bro. Like places people refuse to work at. I couldn't get those jobs, man. So 
thank you for having me and I am so blessed. And I hope yeah, people who are listening, and I was struggling when I was in TC. I was getting high in TC, man. I'm not I'm not even going to lie. I was getting high. I was bringing dope into TC, man. And uh, I didn't learn my lesson. So that lady who gave me an opportunity, I spit in her face. Did I complete? Yeah, but I wasn't shooting it all the way straight. I was just manipulating. And uh, Survival tactics, man. But let me ask you a question. So today, with that being said, what do you do for your recovery? What for for a guy like you getting in on the streets? What does recovery look like for you? So for me, like our program is it's twelve step base, but we're, I'm on all pathways because I done bumped my head so many times and been through so many things that I can't look you in the eyes and say you have to be a twelve stepper. Exactly. Because if you're not a, if you're not a twelve stepper and I'm refusing you an opportunity, mm-hmm. you might die because I'm stuck in my own head. But mm-hmm. so recovery for me nowadays, honestly, it's chilling with the guys. I got three houses full of guys, and they Great look to me. Man, they look up to me, and it's mm-hmm. weird. It's yeah. so weird. I remember when I had my first building, I had 27 guys, and we lived at the same place. And, you know, it was funny. I was just dating my wife that I have now. She thought I was crazy. It was like she remembers all of them. God rest in peace. Bam. You know, a few of them are not here, but we got about 23 of those guys that are still alive and still still clean today. Got a few that passed away. You know, Greg, Bam, a couple others that just didn't make it, Jeff. But for the most part, you know, you remember homeboy that was at the church? It was Leo, uh, a game over on his eyelids? I, yeah. Yeah, that was, that's one of my guys, too, from the original from Tribe. You know what yeah. I mean? So with that, he used to be scared. Me and Bam, Bam's like, like six, five, 300 pounds. And we'd have these these 12-step meetings, and we'd use the popsicle sticks, the old school way, but you'd have, like, spirituality and everything written yeah. on them. And he'd sit in there so mad, and he would chew on the popsicle stick, and me and Bam would ticks back together. Like, you taking the popsicle stick? I'm not taking the popsicle <laughs> stick. You know what I mean? He's chewed on the fifth one this, this week. He goes, you got more popsicle sticks? We got plenty of popsicle yeah. sticks. You know what I mean? It was yeah. just, we learned to have Christmas in those rooms together, and, you know, that's the great thing about sober living that people got to understand. You really find your family. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would not trade a moment of being poor. You know, I remember me and Dan cutting a burrito in half, literally, because Dan took the payment and I had a second job. Yeah. So we could we could do this. You know what I mean? I would jump on planes. Everybody thinks I'm on planes. I'm actually on planes again. You know, I took a little spell of putting tribe together and being home and, and being married and dialing that in. And now I'm back on planes again because that's how it started. You know what I mean? It's just going and doing interventions everywhere. But your your story is just it's it's next to a miracle. Hearing a lot of my story and yours, and, and trust me, you did a whole lot more harder time than I did. I'm not going to even lie about that. You know what I mean? I was on a medium way quicker, and I I was you know I was you know I didn't have to go through that. I did some whole time, but I didn't do nothing like yours. But still, at the same time, the treatment and the opportunity was the same and what's beautiful right now is like if you look at us as wages partners which if you're not one i want to help you no we need to get you up in there to become one you need to get with Corey. you need to get with latino coalition to become a wages partner as soon as possible and if i can help with that navigate to make that that introduction happen just like hassan did for me and leo did for me and a few other things you know what i mean but with that being said um there's 22 partners out there that are killing it and we're locked arms. So like we had this sunset thing that was the other day when we were in uh, 
was about a couple months ago when we were in front of the committee. So a sunrise, everybody, and a sunset of a grant means a sunrise when it starts, and obviously the sunset is when it closes. And you need to show data on why you need to make that, that grant sunrise again. 22 lived experience organizations sitting in a, in a, in a facility, sitting in the Capitol, talking to everybody about recovery and why it's needed. We run the reentry in the state of Colorado. There's nobody better but places like us. Yeah. Just like your organization, my organization, Hassan's, Hazelbrook, Lifeline. You know what I mean? There's tons of out there. Denver Works, all these different beautiful companies that are out there. You know what I mean? Impact Center that has a million of us in there. You know, it's a... Uh, it's crazy, and I'm glad you're on the show. I would love to help you contribute to get the, this mission farther, figure out whatever type of funding sources, even partner with some grants to figure out how that works and how that goes. But, uh, yeah, man, this uh, – I was uh, – I knew you had a story. I just didn't know you had a story story, and I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. Well, you know, you said earlier you were like um, when you first got out that you were the same guy pretty much. You know, that you hadn't done much to change, but I can tell that whoever you were when you first got out, that's not who's sitting in front of me now. Mm-hmm. Like you've definitely made a lot of changes because I can see a tremendous, a tremendous man in front of me, you know, and did you graduate high school? So I was in the Colorado Division of Youth Corrections. They changed it to Division of Youth Services because it doesn't sound, mm-hmm. ooh, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it was Youth Corrections when I was there. So juvenile prison. They'd make us go to the classroom, Mm -hmm. and we'd color in a coloring book. So do I have a high school diploma? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I colored in a coloring Uh book to Uh get it. In a state state facility. Because people will will look down on somebody and go, oh, well, this is how far your education goes. But you've gone much further than anybody would expect. Yeah, that's what I tell my wife every day. I'm like, man, even when I'm stressed out, I'm like, on paper, I was never supposed to live out here. Like, period. I was supposed to die, like, die or die in prison. So whatever's going on, I can figure that out. Yeah, you know, I had this one saying I used to say all the time, I'm like, I'm a GED battling PhDs. And I have a mentor that says, no, you're a GED partnering with PhDs. So know the difference. PhDs are learning from your life experience. And we trade off because it's a lived experience with the people with educations. We're both needed. To to me Me and Nani... We're having a meeting prior to the to the to the show, and we're talking about the essence of true help and what we need. If we're not locking arms, everybody, and helping, and stop hating, you got to help while everybody else is hesitating. Stop just thinking about what is the good thing and what is the proper way of doing it. Just get off your butt and help somebody. Even if you helped him a million times, help him a million and one. And if you're tired and you can't do it, fold him over to somebody or her over to somebody that'll actually do it. You know, um, and that's the true essence of this situation of what we need to do. And it's also you got to understand is, well, everybody that's out there judging about businesses in your mind that you thought you were successful, that you never did. You're listening to a man that didn't have anything that actually put it together from a hot dog cart coming straight out of CSP. So how do you like them apples? So get up (laughs) off of your butt and try to go ahead and figure out how your life is, because every miracle is possible at any moment. Yes. You put in work. Mm-hmm. Like you've earned work. where you're at right now. I didn't have a choice. The way I saw it in my mind is I had no choice. Mm-hmm. I was either going to be what I'd always been. And you did I didn't. have a choice. You had a choice to go back. But I didn't. I got to the point where I didn't You had a choice to do the same, old, the same old crap. You had that choice. 
Good. You you chose you you made a big choice. Yeah. You made a mission. You made a mission statement for your life. I just want to say, since Tomas is here, I applied at Tribe and they did not hire me. <laughs> did you? Did you? But well, we're yeah. gonna have to go talk to Ozzy about that one because I'm kind of the one mad. who didn't hire me. Man, <laughs> there will this be a, a conversation. Yeah. This was a few years ago. Though, yeah, man, Ozzy, you hear that, man? <laughs> but if you did, you little Navajo. If they did, you wouldn't be where you are now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's you know, it's the same things. I work with Leo. Me and Leo had our differences, but we're still good now. You know, Hassan wouldn't even take my calls because I had the wrong person calling him. Yeah. And he was like, when I finally, he just called me out one day and he was like, you know how Hassan talks. Yeah. He goes, yo, Tomas. I go, what's up? Who's this? He goes, this is Hassan Latif. Can you be it to my office? I want to, I want to talk to you. I want to, I want to partner with you. Man, I don't even think I had gas in the car and I didn't even stop at the gas station. I was at that dude's place so quick. <laughs> you know what I mean? First time and I, I got met over Hassan, there. bro, yeah. I shook his hand because he was a legend in the joint. Yeah. People were like, he was the one who I always heard for years. People were like, man, this dude's doing stuff. Anything's possible. And that's why I tell people all the time, bro, if you yeah. want to be an astronaut, call Hassan. Exactly. <laughs> he will help you be whatever. <laughs> he will find a way to get you whatever you want to be. Exactly. So, and I, I, I met him, I shook his hand and man, I love Hassan, bro. He's a good, yeah, he's man. A good man. Yeah, you know, it's a, and it's a trip, you know, it's a, you know, I got the chance to go out to San Francisco with him and I remember one pinnacle thing that he said to me, he was like, you know, Tomas, I'm not the biggest guy out there. I'm not the smartest guy. He goes, but I'm like, Heinz 57 ketchup sauce. You go, or Heinz 57 sauce. I play a mean game of ketchup. I learn. <laughs> he goes, yeah. He goes, I learn quick and I learn on my toes and I take every responsibility and everything and I use spirituality and my family and in, in the community to get the things that we need to be done. And he asked and he told me another pinnacle thing and I can't wait until we get him on this show. He did say that changed my life. He says, Tomas, what do you do? Do you compete with, with others or do you compete with yourself? And I said, you know what? I've been guilty of both. He goes, that's a good, fair enough answer. He goes, but which one was the best for you? I said, when I competed with others, I became a smaller shell of myself and I started getting a lot of negativity in my life. But when I competed with myself, I pushed myself to be so much better. And, you know, and that's the essence of what you've been talking about is you competed with yourself. You didn't let it go. I mean, you showed that, you know, your, your wife's been on this show that love prevails. You know what I mean? That you can be in recovery, that support system that you have. You know, like a lot of stuff with my wife, I'm not even worthy to even be her husband at some of the stuff that I've done in the past. And you know what? I don't even know how to be a husband right now. And I'm trying to put it together because, you know, I've been in the same situations as you. And it's like, you know, how do you find love when you're, you know, like my own version of my framed uh, bloody shirt being jumped in? You know, Nani's is a little bit different. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that right now. <laughs> we'll just go ahead and move on from that one. But anyway, <laughs> but you know, with that being said, I'm going to hand it over to Swim, but I just love you, man. I appreciate it. We want to thank our guest, Kelly Mahana from Authentic Recovery Homes for coming in today. How can people learn more about Authentic Recovery Homes? Yeah, you can go to our website, www.authenticrecoveryhomes.com. You could email me, kelly at authenticrecoveryhomes.com. Um, the numbers are all on there. All right. Yeah. Mahai, um, you know, Kelly said people looked at him and they wouldn't give him a job. And it's another reminder, don't judge a book by its cover. All right. And so, Ozzy. Yeah, right. Ozzy. All right. Don't don't look at somebody by their tattoos and decide you've already, you know, you've already <laughs> decided what kind of person they are. Um, kelly Mahana, thank you very much.
for coming in today. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Thank you. you. Mahai, this is Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of addiction and recovery. You can find this program on flowdenver.com, also on jammin1015.com. It is brought to you by Tribe Recovery Homes here in the 5280 Podcast Studio, brought to you by Merge Media Academy. Join us again next week. And thank you very much for being a part of Sharing Our Stories.